All right. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12 as we continue our journey through Luke's gospel? Thank you. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12 in this chapter this morning, and I'd like to read it for us as we begin. Uh, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along or to use one of those um, that are under the seats too. You could follow along there as well. Luke 12, beginning at verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogue rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word again to hear your truth. And Lord, as we come, there are times when we read a passage like this and we may have questions, we may wonder exactly what does this mean, and so I pray today that you would Guide me in what I share, that it would be true and helpful for those who are here this morning. And also pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear what you want to say to us today. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the temptations in ministry can be the desire to please people. That's not just true of ministers, but that can be true of all of us, that there are times when we may want to do that. Most of us don't like conflict. Some of us are people pleasers by nature. And you can imagine that if you are a pastor, you know, and you're starting a church or you, you got a smaller church and you'd like it to grow, you know, there can be a temptation to avoid controversial subjects or just to say what people want to hear. You know, I think back on those days when our church started and we're just gathering people and getting going. Uh, one of the things I learned, though, pretty quickly is that you can't please everyone. And so you need to take a stand on something and you need to stand on the truth of God's word. But if you are in the marketplace and say you yourselves, you're thinking about your work or you're thinking about school, there can be a temptation in those conversations around the water cooler or near the locker or whatever where, you know, people are saying one thing. Maybe the language turns a little off color. Maybe it's offensive to you as a Christian. Do you say anything? Do you just let that go? Or do you speak up? 
in your defense of Christ. And the same thing for students or children. When you're in that setting where things are going in a direction you know they shouldn't go and kids want to do something that they shouldn't be doing, do you walk away? Do you avoid joining them? Or do you kind of go with the crowd just to be accepted or try to be one of them? Those are temptations that are real that can come to all of us, and this is the temptation that Jesus addresses here. The only thing is that he puts it even stronger. It's not whom will you please, but whom will you fear? Whom will you fear? In chapter 12, we see two things happening as Jesus continues his ministry. We see this growing opposition that is coming from the religious leaders. I mean, chapter 11, what we walked through last week, those six woes where he pronounced his judgment against them, these indictments of their religion, they were furious. I mean, look again at the end of chapter 11, verses 53 and 54. It said, when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. You know, he had pointed out their sin. But rather than repent of that and turn and ask for forgiveness, they wanted to kill the messenger. And they're trying to find a way that they can trap Jesus so they have a reason to put him to death. On the other side, you have this growing popularity among the people. Luke tells us, meanwhile, same time this is going on with the Pharisees, a crowd of many thousands that gather. The word he uses there is myriad. It could be 10,000 or more people had come. There, there's so many people crowding around trying to get to Jesus and to hear him that they're tripping over one another. And Jesus turns at this time to his disciples to instruct them. This is a very important lesson that they are about to learn. And I can imagine Jesus as he is teaching them, also asking them those questions. Guys, Will you compromise your message to avoid conflict with the Pharisees? Will you cater to the people just to remain popular? Or will you stand with me and boldly declare the truth of God's word? What about us? Whom will we fear? Where will we take our stand? Well, there are three things I want to bring out from this passage this morning. The first one is that Jesus tells us that we are to be on our guard against hypocrisy. We say that in verses 1 to 3. He says in verse 2, or excuse me, end of verse 1, he says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That word yeast there, that's kind of translated that way for us to understand. We use yeast in making bread and things like that. But back then, it's actually the word leaven, They would take part of that dough, set it aside to be used for the next batch when they were making bread. And so uh, he's telling them to beware of this leaven, this yeast of the Pharisees. And what he's referring to is their teaching, their false teaching, their legalism, their hypocrisy. Be aware. Don't follow what these guys are doing. Because just like yeast works its way through a batch of dough, So the teaching of the Pharisees can infect a whole group. Legalism and hypocrisy is deadly. And he goes on to tell them, I want you to be assured that there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. 
Uh, you may think that no one will see you. You may think no one will hear what you are saying or even know what you are thinking, but God does. It's all open before him. And so keep that in mind, guys, that everything is open before the eyes of the Lord. And one day, we will all stand before God to give an account for our life. For believers, that is going to be at the Bema seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about that. We will all stand before this judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be rewarded for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. But for the believer, it is not about condemnation. This isn't about salvation. In Romans 8.1, the Bible tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been covered by his blood. You have been forgiven in Christ. But this judgment is about stewardship. It's about rewards. It's about how we have lived our life and what do we do with the time and the gifts and the money that we have been given. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15, it tells us that God's going to judge the quality of each one's work. He's going to put a match to it. And it's like if what we have done is like wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to be consumed. And none of that will pass into eternity. But if what we have done has been like gold and silver and precious stones, it will last. Work well done for Christ, for his honor and glory will carry over into eternity. For the unbeliever, the judgment that is to come is the great white throne judgment. We find it in Revelation 20. It's what occurs at the end of time when the books will be opened. And in Revelation 20, it says, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, then they will be cast into the lake of fire. It is the eternal judgment. And how sad will that day be? And so he says, be on your guard against hypocrisy, against false teaching. Be honest about your relationship with God and with others. And when you see sin in your life, bring it before the Lord and be honest and confess it to him. Max Lucado is a pastor who's written a lot, probably very well known to all of us, and most of you have probably even heard him on the radio or read a book that he has written. Well, in his book, Grace, that came out a few years ago, he shares this story that shows how hypocrisy can even make its way into the life of a pastor. He said, ever since my high school buddy and I drank ourselves sick with a case of quartz, I have liked beer. Out of the keg, tap, bottle, or frosty mug, it doesn't matter to me, I like it. But I also know that alcoholism haunts my family ancestry. I have early memories of following my father through the halls of a rehab center to see his sister. Similar scenes repeated themselves with other relatives for decades. Beer doesn't mix well with my family's DNA. So at the age of 21, I swore it off. And then a few years back, something resurrected my cravings. At some point, I reached for a beer instead of a can of soda, and as quick as you can pop the top, I was a beer fan again. First once in a while, then once a week, then once a day. And he said, I kept my preference to myself, though. No beer at home, 
Didn't want my daughters to think less of me. No beer in public. Didn't want somebody to see me. You know, somebody from the church might see me. I wasn't going to drink in public. Well, none at home and none in public leaves only one option, convenience store parking lots. He said, for about a week, I was that guy in the car drinking out of a brown paper bag. He said, no, I don't know what resurrected my cravings, but I remember what stunted them. I was en route to speak at a men's retreat, and I stopped for my daily purchase. I walked out of the convenience store with a beer pressed against my side, scurried to my car for fear of being seen, opened the door, climbed in, and opened the can. And then it dawned on me. I had become the very thing I hate, a hypocrite, a pretender, two-faced, acting one way, living another. I had written sermons about people like me, Christians who care more about appearance than integrity. It wasn't the beer, but the cover-up that nauseated me. You get what he's saying here? He's not being a legalist saying that, you know, no one should drink ever, period, you know. But for him, this was wrong. This was sin. And every person has to make that choice about, you know, your own personal situation, your convictions about this, how often you would or if you would not. But I understand what he's saying here. And so here he was living this kind of hypocritical life, and God convicted him. What did he do? He went to the elders, and he confessed his sin and asked their forgiveness. And then he went before the church, and he admitted his duplicity and asked for their forgiveness. And what happened in that service was an outpouring of love and also confession by others that went on for more than an hour. His openness caused others to be open too. And I think about that. You know, it is not hypocritical to admit our sin. We are all sinners. I mean, we all have done things that we know are wrong. What is hypocritical is to pretend to be something we are not. And I I think about this example here. You know, in my family, I had two uncles on my dad's side who were alcoholics, and it ruined their life. It ruined their life. One said no to God's call to ministry because of it. Another one, he and his wife both were alcoholics, and it just had devastating effects on all their children and grandchildren as that was passed on, and that continued. The choices that we make are just so important, and it's why for me, you know, I'm so grateful my dad didn't drink, and it's why I chose not to do that as well. I don't even want it to be an issue. Secondly, Jesus tells us here that we are to fear God and not man. We see that in verses 4 to 7. Jesus knows that the disciples will be persecuted. The wrath and hatred of the Pharisees that he is feeling, they are going to feel as well. And so will all who follow in future generations, even today. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In certain parts of the world today, Christians are being thrown in jail, imprisoned, beaten, you know, put to death for their faith. Here, it's not that physical threat, but there is this pressure that is felt to conform, to go with what is politically correct, to say the right things, or to not talk about Christ, you know, and kind of keep that private and don't say anything to others. And there's this pressure to compromise or out of fear or out of, 
you know, uh, what others may think of you. And Jesus comes here. He doesn't promise the disciples that they won't be killed for their faith. In fact, all except John would die as a martyr. And in the history of the church, in every century, there have been martyrs. And in the last century, it is estimated that there were more people killed as Christians for their faith in Christ than in the previous 1,900 years combined. It continues. And Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and do no more. Be afraid of the one who can kill the body and afterwards throw you into hell. Now, hell isn't a very popular subject. And there are churches today where you would probably never hear it spoken about, but hell is real. It is this place of eternal punishment that Jesus spoke about on several occasions. And when he was talking here to the disciples, he used a word that would bring to mind for them a very literal example of this. He used the word Gehenna. Gehenna is the Greek word for the Valley of Hinnom. It is a valley south and southwest of Jerusalem that was used as a garbage dump. Fires burned continually. They would see that. They could smell the fumes that were coming from there. They could see the fire and the smoke. And Jesus used this as his word to describe what hell is like. And the reason this valley had become a garbage dump was that in Israel's darkest days, when they had turned away from the Lord and worshipped pagan gods, it was a place that had been used for child sacrifice. And it was so repugnant to the Jewish people that they didn't know what else to do. They used it as a garbage dump so that nothing else could take place there. Jeremiah said it would be a place of judgment in the future. And so Jesus is reminding us as believers, reminding the disciples here that we are to fear God, not men. And then he goes on and he gives another example in verses 6 and 7 to remind us of how much God loves us. Never forget how much he loves you. He says, for example, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. When the other gospel says, not one of them falls to the ground without your father knowing. And then he says, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And think about that. I mean, sparrows and hairs may seem insignificant to us, yet they are known by God. And if God cares about even these little details in our world, won't he care about you? You are worth more than many sparrows. We are to fear and love God. And keep that balance in our heart, a reverence for God at all times, but a holy fear. Pastor Lee Eklab, who's a friend of mine, said it like this. He said, I used to think that living in the fear of the Lord was like driving down the street while watching a policeman in your rearview mirror. You know, and it's like, oh man, he's probably back there watching if I mess up, I'm going to get pulled over and so this is what I got to do. And he said, you know, I don't think that's a good example of it. I think a better picture is to think of it like when you are a teenage driver and you are learning how to drive and your father is there with you. What is he doing? Your dad's not there to see if you slip up and then to jump all over you. Your dad is there because he wants you to learn 
powder dry. And to do that well, to do that safely, he wants you to enjoy the freedom of driving a car. But he wants to make sure that you get home at night. And so he's there to kind of coach and instruct you and to say, you know, make sure you use your blinkers or make sure you stop at the stop sign and look both ways and all those kind of things because he loves you. He cares about you. And so does our Heavenly Father. He loves us and cares about us and wants us to make it safely home. And then thirdly, what we see in this text is that we are to stand firm with Jesus. Stand firm on the truth of his word. He tells us in verse 8 that whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. You know, there's no higher court. There's no greater place to be than in the presence of God. And he's saying that what we do today affects what will happen then. Will we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, or will we deny him? Will we hold on to him and confess him, not just when life is good, but even when your life is on the line? Will you stand for Jesus? The consequences are serious. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between being accepted by Jesus or rejecting him. You know, and I think back in church history, I read the stories of many of the martyrs who died holding on to Jesus. And I praise God for them. And I weep for them when I hear those stories and wonder how the world can do what it does. I think of Polycarp, second century, a man who had been discipled by John the Apostle. And here he is. He's 86 years old, and the authorities have arrested him and sentenced him to be burned at the stake. And they are saying to him that if you just deny Christ, we will let you free. Polycarp, you're an old man. Why don't you just do this? Why don't you reject Christ, and then we'll let you go? And Polycarp will say that for 86 years I have walked with Jesus, and he has never, never abandoned me. How could I deny him who loved me and gave his life for me? Polycarp would rather give his life to the flames than deny Jesus. Or I think of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, two of the reformers in England who worked and were part of that movement that brought us the scriptures in our own language. And they were considered rebels, outcasts by the church even at that time as they are part of this reform movement that is coming. And they are sentenced to be burned at the stake. And Hugh Latimer will say to his friend Nicholas, he'll say, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man, which means be of courage. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never go out. Be a man. Be a man. These men chose to lay down their life rather than deny Christ. And I praise God for them. And then in verse 10, Jesus said something else about this. He said, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That verse has raised many questions for even believers through the years. I remember when I was 
10 years old, I'm reading through the New Testament for the first time on my own, and I come to that passage, and I'm wondering, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And I was kind of scared, like, something I could do. Have I ever done this, you know? And I'm, I'm trying to understand, what is this? Well, in Matthew and Mark, it is to attribute the work of Jesus to Satan. You go back to that passage where the Pharisees said that Jesus did his miracles by the power of Beelzebub. That was blasphemy. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's denying Jesus. In a broader sense, you know, today too, it is to reject the Holy Spirit's witness to Jesus. It's to deny Jesus as Savior and Lord and want nothing to do with Him. And so because of that, anyone who truly desires to know Jesus and to walk with Him has not, cannot commit this sin, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But there are a couple examples in Scripture, of someone who spoke against Jesus and was forgiven and restored. And those two examples in Scripture, you can think of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. Saul was a persecutor of the church. He described himself as a blasphemer of Jesus, the worst of the worst. He was headed to Damascus to put to death Christians, to have them arrested. This renegade group thought he was doing the right thing, and then on the way to Damascus was blinded by a great light. Heard Jesus speak to him. Understood that Jesus was Lord, and he was wrong. And he would confess his sin. He was forgiven. He became a changed man. Even his name was changed from Saul to Paul. Or you can think of Peter, a disciple. Here, Peter is part of this group that Jesus is teaching on this occasion. He's saying, guys, remember this, whoever acknowledges me before man, I will acknowledge in heaven. Whoever denies me before man, I will deny before my Father in heaven. So when Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, what happens? All the disciples flee. Peter's confronted by a young girl, denies that he ever knew Christ three times. And yet Peter is forgiven and restored by Jesus. And later, Peter would lay down his life as a martyr. He too would be crucified because of his faith in Christ. What made the difference? Why did these men flee at one point, yet later all of them be willing to put their life on the line and die for him? I believe the difference was the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in their life that Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost. And it is that same Spirit who lives and works in us who know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so Jesus says, you know, when that day comes, if you are brought before rulers and officials who want to punish you, who want to threaten you, don't be afraid of what you will say because the Holy Spirit will give you the words. He will give you the boldness that you need to stand for Christ. You know, there's a historic example that is very fitting for this Sunday. Today we turn the calendar to October. And it was 500 years ago this month that the Reformation began. Protestants around the world have been gathering to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation And it began on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther, who was just 34 years old at the time, 
He's a professor in a small university in Wittenberg, and he nailed his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg. Now, nailing something to the door was not irreverent. That door was like a community bulletin board, so that wasn't the issue. But it was what he nailed there that was the issue. He was challenging the efficacy of the sale of indulgences in the church. This practice that had been so abused, saying that, well, if you just put this money in the offering for so-and-so, you can buy them out of hell. You can save them. You can save yourself. You can save a relative. You just put that money in, and this is what will happen. And Luther challenged that teaching. He wasn't out to start a new church or a reformation at that point. He just wanted to have a dialogue about this. But that would be the beginning of a movement that would change the course of the church. And I believe its highest point came a few years later when on April 17, 1521, Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms and John Eck, the archbishop, asked him, Martin Luther, do you recant of the heresies in your writings? Do you defend them all or do you care to reject a part? And Luther gave a quiet answer. He said, this touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. And of this, Christ said that he who denies me before men, him will I deny before the Father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. Luther asked for 24 hours. He came back the next day, that night, his friends had been praying for him all through the night, calling out to God for wisdom and boldness. And when the sun rose that morning, an even greater crowd had gathered to hear him and what he would reply. And as Luther stood before the archbishop, his voice rang out. He spoke first in German so that the common people could hear and understand, and then he spoke in Latin so that the officials in the church could hear. He said, Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth, that unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Luther was saying, here I stand. I can do no other. I will stand on the word of God. You know, that is a battle that still continues to this day. And sadly, there are churches and there are denominations that have moved away from the authority of Scripture, and they will say things like, you know, well, God spoke to them then, and he speaks to us today, and so this is just the writing of men, and we can kind of do what we feel or believe at this time, and, and things change, and sin that was described in the Scripture is no longer considered sin, and other practices are welcomed and accepted. Where will you and I stand? Will we stand upon the Word? Of God? And will we stand with Jesus? You know, at that towering moment, Kent Hughes writes, Luther's massive fear of God freed him from the smaller fear of men. That's, that's powerful. 
And may the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit give us that same boldness. That's where we stand as a church, on the word of God. This is our authority and guide for faith and practice. And may God help us to guard against hypocrisy. May our fear and reverence of him keep us from a fear of man. And may we stand firmly with Jesus in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the courageous examples of those who have gone before us in history. And because of their boldness and sacrifice today, we have your word. We have the gospel. We live in a country where we are free to declare the truth of what you have said. And Father, I pray that you would help us to live for you in the world, to be that savoring influence, salt and light that you have called us to be so that others might come to know Jesus too. And we pray for our country. We pray that your church would rise up, O God, and stand boldly for you. And that that would make a difference in our world in every area of business, of science, of education, of medicine, of all areas of commerce. God, we desire that for the sake of your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.